What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Mellow Mondays podcast. So this week, I've had a few things come up that I need to go deal with. Um, I've actually been kind of thinking about re-uploading an episode for a while. So this is just going to be a re-upload of a podcast I did with my grandpa. This is like right when the podcast first came out years and years ago. So it's it's been a minute. Um, so it's only been on like my old Spotify and uh, Anchor podcast. It's not on YouTube or anything. So I wanted to get it on YouTube anyway. Figured this was a good day to do it. So um, yeah, just uh, it, it, I won't have any video or anything. It's just going to be kind of the Mellow Mondays podcast screen. Um, it's a long episode. It's like over an hour and something, but it's uh, it's cool. It's a special one. It's one that I'm really thankful I had. Got to sit down, have a cool conversation with my grandpa about fishing and um, just some other various things, um, life things. So uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoy this episode and we will uh, catch you next Monday. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Mellow Mondays. Today we are doing a fun one. We are interviewing my grandpa. Do you want to say hello to the fake audience that is not in front of us right now? Hello, everyone. This is an old <laughs> fat guy saying welcome. Yes. So we, uh, I'm, I'm actually really excited for this one today. Um, it's kind of weird interviewing your family. That's what we were just talking about. Like, it's kind of awkward to make it sound, I don't know, natural or whatever. And so I think once we get into it, it'll be good. But we're both kind of like, I don't know, is, is Leary the right word right now? Could be, I guess. I don't know. When you get my age, it's hard to be leery about it. I was going to say, so how old are you for the audience? I'll be 80 next July. 80 next July. So that is, what year were you born then? 1939. 1939. Who I should know this answer, but I don't. Who was president in 1939? President Roosevelt. It was Roosevelt. Yes. 1939. So I... Right before the start of the Second World War. Yeah. That's crazy. I don't know if I've ever asked what, like, I I mean, I knew you were late 70s, but I don't know if I've ever thought 1930s. When was, when was the Depression? The, repre- the Depression was just ending when I was born. Right, when you it were- happened in uh, October of 1929. Okay. And uh, Hoover was president, and then Roosevelt got in, and and Roosevelt had started some projects, WPA. Right. And the CCC and those uh, groups did a lot of good things and they gave people, a lot of fellas jobs. Right. But when we got in the Second World War, that took care of the unemployment problem. Yeah. (laughs) We didn't look back after that for a long time. Right. And that's, I think that's a good segue into kind of the first thing. So for, for you all out there, I've heard... A lot of these stories, and I'm excited to revisit them because I think there's some of my favorite stories, obviously. I think one of the things I find really interesting, so you've had a lot of, I don't want to say interesting jobs, but I think I think my favorite is you, you worked in an ice factory. Is that correct? Yes, I worked for the Independence Ice and Creamery, uh, worked in the summers, worked about 80 hours a week. Yeah, at a dollar for an hour, a dollar no, for an hour, no overtime. <clears throat> so crazy. you could work 80 hours and clear maybe $70, $75. And that was a good job. That's crazy. Well, but you could go to the movies for 35 cents. Right. I mean, how much everybody says, how much was a loaf of bread? 
A loaf of bread was probably about 15 cents then. Yeah, that's crazy. So you guys just stayed at the factory some, especially yeah, I, like peak I worked seasons? At, I worked uh, during the days in the, uh, in the crush room where they crushed uh, ice, and I worked on the bagging end of it where we— It'd run through the crusher and come out, and then we'd bag it up and to twenty-five-pound uh, uh, bags or thirty-pound bags and stack them. And then, of course, those would be hauled out to the vending machines around the metropolitan area. And then we'd work back in the cube room where they had a machine that sawed the big blocks of ice into ice cubes, and we'd put those in ten-pound bags. And we'd do that till about six o'clock at night and then i'd go out on the what we call the cube trucks and these were refrigerated trucks that we'd load full of crushed ice block ice and cube ice and we'd go to the uh, various vending machines they had 12 of them around and we'd do that till about four in the morning and then i'd come back and start working about seven o'clock again Gosh. <laughs> and uh, i'd go home every three days and change clothes and get a bath Right. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven with all this money I was making. I was about to say, how how old were you when you were working there? I was about, <clears throat> I think I was about 18 years old. 18? Yeah, that's when I started. I worked there two summers. and uh, Wasn't there a story of someone paying you all in beer at some point? What well, was that? they had cold storage there, and they stored butter back in one room and then the hams beer distributorship oh it was hams had it yeah really i didn't i, see, yeah, I did not the know land that. of sky blue waters and, and, oh. <laughs> and the hams uh, beer distributorship uh, had a, a cold storage room they rented from the ice company right and this guy would come in at the end of the day and he would uh he would uh, we'd help him unload he had to load everything off his truck and put it back in the cold room so we'd help him unload and if he had any cases that were broken open, well, he'd give us the loose bottles. There you go. And I remember one time, boy, we had, I don't know how many cases open, and we took all this. Well, when they, when you cut ice cubes, you created a lot of real fine, fine, uh, like snow. Right. And we put that in big bags, and the in the early in the morning, uh, the dairy trucks had come by because they didn't have refrigerated trucks, and they delivered milk door to door. Well, they'd come by, and they'd pick up these big bags of snow. They'd buy those, and they'd dump that all over their milk, and then they'd go out on their milk route. Well, we got the good <laughs> idea. The way to keep this cold is to put it in these big bags of snow, so we... <laughs> We must have stuffed 30 or 40 <laughs> bottles of beer down in these bags of snow. Right. And uh, the guy that ran the, the ran the dock for him that, you know, waited on these guys when they came in about, you know, five in the morning. Well, you know, of course, he was a very religious guy <laughs> and he didn't believe in drinking at all. <laughs> <laughs> and when he started dumping all these, they started dumping all these bags of snow out on the, the milk. Why all these bottles of beer started yeah, coming out on top of the milk, and the milk drivers thought it was wonderful. Most of them did anyway. Oh, but sure. we had a big conference over that. That that didn't go over too good. <laughs> so we had to figure out someplace else to keep her beer cold. That's funny. But I remember one time the guy came down there and he had keg beer on one side of his truck. And 
somebody backed into him or something. We weren't sure, but anyway, he had poked a hole in this big keg of beer. And the boss looked out of the window from the ice company office. He looked out there, and here's all his employees lined up with buckets and jars and everything, collecting this beer as it's coming out of this keg. (laughs) Free beer. And that didn't go over too good either. But these were fun times, and you couldn't get a job. There were no McDonald's. You know, they're just, it was hard to get a job and make any money. And I was trying to make money to go to college. And uh, this was a great deal because I could get all these hours. And it uh, worked out good. What was your degree in college again? I have a degree in chemistry. That's right. So so you were 18. You and Grandma got married when you, you were 21. I was 20. You were 20. She was? She was 18. Okay, so she, I knew it was two years. My dad had to sign for me because males, you couldn't get married until you were 21 legally without really? signature. But Janet, she was 18, and females only had to be 18, so she didn't have to have her daddy's signature. Really? <laughs> no. I did not know that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and it when I think about it now, uh scares me to death. I can't imagine what... I am 27... I cannot imagine being married now and being married one now, but two being married at 18. Well, I had two years of college <laughs> left and she had a job where she was working as a legal secretary for two lawyers uptown independence. And she was making $45 a week. That's crazy. <laughs> and I was selling shoes part-time at JC Penney's on the weekends Okay, for, uh, I think I, I think the minimum wage in was a dollar twenty an hour, but anyway, uh, that's what we lived on. But we ate most of our meals at her folks' house, right? And we did all our laundry at her folks' house. We had this little one bedroom apartment. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. We were just dumb enough. We made it work, I guess. I mean, I think more than made it work. You guys have been married sixty years this August. So is it sixty this yeah, August? Oh this my August, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> You guys can uh, hear the dogs barking. So they have a they have a border collie, and then what is a? I actually don't know what Daisy is. Havanese. She's Havanese. So yeah. it's uh, Sammy and Daisy. That's their little. They're both super cute. So you have been married for sixty years. It seems like we just celebrated. Was it fifty? I think it must have been 50 when, remember when we went downtown to the, what was that? The Savoy. The Savoy. Because yes. I have that picture of you and grandma right. outside. I still remember taking that yeah. photo. And that was 10 years ago. So that was this 50. Sum- this summer, yeah. Man, it's hard to believe that was 10 years ago. Yeah, it is. A lot of life has happened in, I it, feel like, 10 years. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I guess I wasn't in school. I definitely wasn't doing production. No, 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 gosh, no. I mean, it was... Uh... But it, it was 10 years ago, and uh, it was a wonderful dinner we had, as I remember. Did we did we do a trip that year for... The year before we did, we went to uh, Mexico. The, oh, that was Mexico. The Maha and Riviera. Went down to uh, a Bayer Star Resort. Yeah. And that was a one fun trip. We finally found somebody who knew how to make a King Alphonse. Yeah, so bef- and this is good. I'm glad. I, I honestly totally forgot about the King Alphonse. So for those of you who don't know our family, um, we have been super blessed, and mainly from my grandparents. Um, 
we have taken huge family trips every year for as long as I can remember. I mean, I did. I used to do trips. Me and my me and my sister would go with just my grandparents, um, and we would do trips every year. And so this particular year, I guess it was the year before, we were celebrating their fiftieth wedding anniversary, and so we took a trip to Mexico. And do you want to tell the King Alphonse story? I guarantee there's no one in the audience who knows what a King Alphonse is. Well, the Abara Star Resorts are all inclusive resort, so obviously, if you want to get a drink of anything, you just go up to the bar and tell a man what you want. And I told Austin, I said, I bet I know a drink that they don't know how to make. <laughs> and he said, what's that? And I said, it's a King Alphonse. So we went up to the bar and talked to this young bartender and I ordered a King Alphonse and he disappeared and he came back and he said, sir, uh, can you tell me how you make that? <laughs> yeah. So I explained to the man how you made it. It's very simple, just a Kahlua vodka and with a little cream floated on top. Right. It's an after-dinner drink. So this went on a few times. We never found anybody in the resort that knew how to make one of these. It's an old, old-fashioned drink. So we took a trip down to, I think it was called the Lost World or something. Uh, yeah, I believe that's it what was, it was called. It was a real bizarre day. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how to describe it. We went through the yeah. the jungle on uh, uh, a pedal bicycles on cables and I, I, I don't they, know what they called them all they called it i think it was it's called a sky cycle sky so, cycle yes. so literally like to give yeah give some context we we walk into this place on our way to ride this sky cycle a spider monkey <laughs> yeah chases me and my uncle like it got out of its cage and we we ride this we go to this sky cycle thing and it's it's literally like it's a canopy tour, but you're on this kind of sit down like bicycle, and so we're we're in the middle of the Mexican jungle, like legitimately. And my uncle asked, like, "Oh, what's the weight limit?" And they're like, "Oh, like there's not really a weight limit." So like they're, I mean, it seemed safe, but it wasn't like it probably was a little sketchy. But it's it's when they told us that. You know, it's fastened ever so many feet. Yeah. It's attached to a tree or a pole or something. They don't want two two cyclists in between supports at a time. That's when you begin wondering. Uh, that was Whoa. that was the only rule. Yeah. It's not two people between trees. And so we, we took this bicycle ride. It ended up being pretty strenuous. And so you take it into a... It's called a cenote, right? A cenote, cenote. I don't. Yeah, cenote. It's an underwater cavern filled with, partially filled with water. Right. Yeah. And you could, and they had a path through there that you could wade, with the lights, and, uh, and then they had the deal where you, did the. Uh, uh, oh, what are the what do they call the wires? Uh, the we did zip lines. Zip lines, yeah. They had those down into a pool of water and all that. But anyway, yeah. we were coming out of there that that afternoon, kind of late, and all these young young boys that worked there were all around in a bunch, and we were having a good time joking with them and laughing with them. Well, anyway, they were talking about drinks or something, and 
I said, I bet you don't know how to make a King Alphonse. And this little guy stood up. He, he I didn't look like he was 15. Yeah. He stood up and he said, I can tell you how. And he knew exactly. And I told him, I said, you need to go up here to the resort and get you a job because they don't have anybody up there that knows how to make one. <laughs> and we had a big laugh over that. Oh, and that, and that was kind of our, it turned into our nightly activity during the whole trip was me, I mean, I must have been 17, maybe 18 at the time. We would go and try to stump the different bartenders, you know, an all-inclusive resort, there's multiple bars. And so we'd go each night and try to stump them with a drink. And the joke became we literally couldn't find anyone who could make a King Alphonse except for in the middle of the Mexican jungle. <laughs> this guy knew exactly how to make it. And so that's a fond memory. It's a funny one. That's and we man, we have a lot of stories. I think one of my one of my favorite trips was when we went to the Virgin Islands with the family. Yes. What we were on Saint John. Saint John. We uh had to go way up the Oh, yeah. The hill, a winding switchback uh, drive up to the hill. But we had a nice villa with a fantastic view rented. And they had all these beautiful beaches. And uh, the snorkeling was yeah. great. Uh, it was really, really a great trip, a fun trip. And uh, we uh, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, we did a little deep sea fishing. Oh yeah, we and, did that, uh, didn't we? Yeah, and uh, Austin's dad, he he doesn't fish, but he was fishing and uh, he lost his lost his bait. He had a big kind of a hookup, <clears throat> but then it got off and the and the guide says, "Oh, you've been sharked." So apparently a shark had taken the bait. So we were taking turns because it was real choppy, rough water, and uh, it was kind of. We were kind of concerned about a bunch of us standing around. Yeah. The gunnel on this boat was probably about maybe 30 inches tall, if that. And we were kind of concerned about somebody falling out. So <laughs> we did it one at a time. And uh, uh, Austin's dad, uh, he got rigged up again, and he hooked into one. And, I mean, it was something else. And he went around the boat twice, hanging on to this thing. And like I said, he doesn't fish. But anyway, when he finally came up and they gaffed this thing, it was a 54-inch barracuda. Oh, this thing was this thing was huge. <laughs> With a huge mouthful of teeth. Oh, yeah. And it, <laughs> and it was really fun to watch Phil. He got so excited. Oh, that, and, well, we all did, but he was so excited to, to catch it. And I thought that was great that Austin let his dad take his yeah. turn because that's what he did. Yeah. I remember I like I was happy he caught the fish, but I was like, man, I wish I would have caught that fish. <laughs> but that kind of put it into perspective. So the Virgin Islands is really known for, um, yeah, it's known for good fish, or I'm sorry, good snorkeling, and so and beautiful beaches. They have a lot of, a lot of beautiful swim beaches. And I, I remember we were snorkeling out on, you could you could swim out on some of these um, beaches and snorkel. And so I remember we were swimming out one day, or maybe we were on, we did a catamaran ride one day. I don't remember which one we were. But as we were doing it, we saw a barracuda just swimming around. This is after my dad had caught that 54-inch barracuda. And that put it into perspective, like seeing one in your hands and then you're kind of out 
swimming and swimming with one. That was a little alarming. It was still fun, but I was like, okay, this is a little uh this is a little intense for me. I think I think our family is unique in that we we're pretty close. Like my mom's side of the family, we all live in kind of this certain area of Kansas City, and so we're really blessed to be able to do a lot of things together. I think that rolls over into um we have a family business, I guess. I mean, not I guess. We have a family business that you helped um, start. Do you want to talk about Reedco at all? Well, uh, I, I had a company, Modern Plastic Molding, with my wife's brother. We had this company together. Uh, her father-in-law, my father-in-law had been in it, and he had retired. And uh, I had worked with an engineering firm on different projects, because we had a custom injection molding operation. And what that is, is we had the molding machines and the, and the equipment and the know-how. But if you were someone that needed a plastic part injection molded and, you know, you didn't need to go into the molding business, why you would come to a custom molder and he would uh, work with you and get it developed and put it in production for a certain price. Well, I got a call from this engineering firm that I'd worked with. They said, we got a couple guys here. They want to come down and talk to you. They've got a new product, and they wanted to know if you'd be interested in looking at it. And I, not too many custom molders like to work with individuals because most of them are undercapitalized. Right. And these guys weren't an exception to that, but they had a product that I really liked. It was a lighted, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a lighted fishing bobber, and I fished. I had fished ever since I was a kid, and I thought, man, a, a, a night bobby or a night bobber that you could turn on, put on your line and turn on and cast it out at night and see it. I thought, that's fantastic. So we had to change the design a whole bunch because it would have, would have been almost impossible to make economically, and we made some changes and all that, but I got involved in it. And I finally invested in it because they were running out of money. And it it's really hard to get a new product, especially a single item, going. And uh, I got in it. And over the years, I, I started buying people out. They wanted out and this and that. But uh, after 35 years, we're still making that lighted fishing bobber in Independence. We've sold it in Walmart for 34 years. We've sold That's it crazy. in Bass Pro for 30 Cabela's for 30. We've sold it for Dick's Sporting Goods for almost 20. And uh, we now sell it uh, in tons of mom and pop uh, bait shops that are close to water. It's right. it's well established and uh, we've really had a lot of fun with it. Well, and that's so uh, that was my summertime job. I mean, probably from, I mean, I probably started when I was eighth grade. You were 14. 14. So, I mean, I, I worked there every summer from 14. You could do everything but drive the forklift. Yeah. that's. <laughs> I was like, man, I started, I started just making boxes for an entire summer. I would make boxes. So there's obviously various parts to assembling this night, Bobby, when you're a young kid. I made boxes, the boxes that they then packaged the night Bobbies in. And then by the end of it, I mean, I was doing everything really. Yes, yes. And so, including driving the fork truck. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember. I loved one of my favorite things was always packing orders. So, like, it, you used to pack orders in a way where you would kind of, it, it looked like Tetris in a way. You would pack these boxes 
and you would use saran wrap to wrap half of it. You'd flip it over. You'd pack the rest of it. Like it was kind of an interesting, fun part of the job because it is, I mean, it's, it's a uh, monotonous kind of mind numbing job <laughs> most of the time. And so you, you quickly find all of the world's problem, solutions to all the world's problems, but it helps you decide to go to college. It does. I went to college, decided I did not want to make night bobbies for the rest of my life, which I'm grateful for. But that was a huge blessing, as one, as far as a job, but at two, I think, work ethic and just like instilling, like working hard. But And this kind of segues into you guys bought a lake house at Lake of the Ozarks. For those of you who know that name, yes, there are scenes from Ozark and Lake of the o- like Lake of the Ozarks is where a lot of Ozark is said to have taken place the the Netflix show, and so this summer job allowed me to have a little bit of freedom as far as my summers and being able to go and enjoy this lake. So you all bought the lake house. It was what three months after I was born. Yeah, you were born in June, and we bought it in uh, September. Yeah, so that's been in the family 27 years, mm-hmm. and now it has recently switched owners, officially. Yes. That's crazy. Yes. Now, I sold it to my son-in-law and my do- his wife, my daughter, yeah. and my other daughter, and it's it's their money pit now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I would say, those of you who don't know much about um, Lake Real Estate, there's a lot of upkeep and a lot of money that goes into it. Long story short, you all were tired of dealing with it, basically. Yes. And, well, it was time. And it, I think I think there was discussion for a while of it not being sold to family, and I think we all kind of got to that place of, I mean, it's a little harder now. Like, I'm older. I don't live in Kansas City anymore, and so accessibility is more tough. But I think my parents got to this place, too, of I can't imagine it not being in the family. Like it just didn't seem like an option at the end of the day, and so I'm I'm thankful they bought it. Obviously, I reap the benefits from it, but we've had a lot of good summers and good times at the lake. Well, it's been wonderful because, like you said earlier, uh, the whole family is right here in the Kansas City area, and we're all about uh, 125, 130 miles from the lake house, and. Uh, mm-hmm. We could uh, sleep 13 people in it, so the whole family could go down if they wanted to. Oh, yeah. We had some great Fourth of Julys and Labor Days. Best holiday is by far the Fourth of July. I love Christmas, but Fourth of July, so we have some traditions there. We always do homemade ice cream. We always grill on the Fourth of July. And for a long time, the fireworks show was always my dad and Uncle Robert, really. Yes. And so they would they would put on this big firework display and then when I got old enough I kind of took over this role with my dad and so me and my dad do a fireworks show every year for the family. And uh that is one of one of my favorite memories, especially in favorite memories with my dad is shooting fireworks off every year for the 4th. Like I think too I wasn't sure how I wanted to go into this, but uh so you are a you're an avid fisherman. Yeah, well, yes, I love to fish, and I fished ever since I was a kid. I was wondering. Um, I don't know how did you get into fishing. 
Well, uh, when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot for kids to do, and we lived out, uh, actually outside the city limits, so there were a lot of ponds and little lakes around that we could go to, and we used to like to go and fish and then skinny dip. We'd go swimming, <laughs> and uh, we, we got into it. I got into it that way, and then as I got older, uh, uh I did more sophisticated fishing, but I never really got into a lot of boat fishing right. because I uh, couldn't afford a boat, for one thing. But uh, my wife's uh, father, my father-in-law, the year before we married, he got me interested in trout fishing. He took me fly fishing to Bennett, Stream, Bennett Spring State Park, and it would be about 61 years ago, and that got me started into fly fishing, and that became... Uh, a big part of my interest in fishing, although there was about, there were about 10 years I went every, every year to uh, northern Minnesota and Canada. We'd go and did a lot of walleye fishing. And then we, we, we did a fly-in to a place called Hatchet Lake Lodge. It's in northern Saskatchewan. And I think the nearest road to the place is like 150 miles. I mean, it's really <laughs> yeah. isolated. You can, you can only get there by flying in or by boat. And uh, we flew in. Uh, they, they had, it was a, an arranged deal. Very nice. Uh, we met in Minneapolis, and they put us on a, oh, this is probably about a 42-seat, two-engine jet, a Falker jet. from Canadian <laughs> Air flew this thing into Hatchet Lake Lodge. Now, we got on this plane the first time, and it was very nice. And you had, uh, oh, I don't know, a pretty full cabin. You had uh, two crew flying it and one stewardess. And uh, all the drinks were free. Really? Yeah. And it's about <laughs> a... Hey. It was probably about almost a three-hour flight or three-and-a-half-hour flight from Minneapolis. You had to fly to Winnipeg and go through customs, and then you had another two hours in Winnipeg. And you could look out the window, and all you saw was lakes and trees. I mean, there was no roads, no <laughs> vehicles, nothing. So, But, you know, it was great. Now, we were supposed to get there about a uh, little afternoon and have lunch and then go fishing. For a half a day. That was part of the trip. So, you know, we were having a fun time. And like I said, the drinks were free. And the camaraderie, camaraderie was good. And the yeah. lives were ben were bountiful. Of course so, they were. So anyway, we, we got there and we looked out. And this pilot, he flew around. And here was this gravel dirt runway man-made and there was a windsock and that was it <laughs> and he flies over this i guess to see which way the wind was coming from i don't know because then he circled around again and he started coming in and he flew in lower and this was an elevated runway it was built way up on top of a hill flattened out and he came in lower and lower, and we were looked like we were going to hit the top of the trees. And he flew right in the end of this runway. It's, it's kind of like it'd be like landed on an aircraft carrier, I think. I yeah. don't know. 
except there wasn't a catch cable anywhere to be found. And we hit that thing. <laughs> well, it was all brakes and flaps and reverse thrust. But he had to kill the thrust. He couldn't do the reverse thrust then. And the reason being, it was uh, would suck all the gravel up into the engines. Yeah. So when we got off of that plane, you could smell something like it was on fire burning, you know, that like burnt rubber or whatever. And I looked over at the wheels, and you could see the smoke coming off of the brakes on the wheels. Jeez. And we were down at the end of the runway. So I thought, well, uh, I don't know about this. So <laughs> you, you made it. <laughs> well, the thing of it was, I didn't take partake in hardly any drinks. Right. Because I wanted to go fishing. That was the that was the mistake. That was the first time. The second time I went, <laughs> went I knew how he was going to stop this plane, yep. and I drank all the way up there. <laughs> but uh, it was it was crazy. But we caught uh, oh six, eight, ten, twelve pound northern pike just <clears throat> constantly. I mean, it was we were on these lakes where like a lot of those lakes. Uh, we were in Hatchet Lake. Well, a lot of the lakes we would fly out to. We'd fly out on a a little uh, pontoon plane, a beaver, and then there was one called an otter. And you could take, uh, the otter could take uh, six fishermen and three guides and a pilot and all their gear. And the beaver could take four fishermen, two guides, the pilot, and all their gear. And we'd fly out to these remote lakes, and there would be maybe two or three boats there, and that's it. There was no one else fished on those lakes. This uh, guy that had the resort, he was from Scotland. And so he could get a special permit because he was part of the United Kingdom. Right. And I don't know how that's arranged, but anyway, he had that. And so uh, you fished on these lakes. It was all catch and release. The only thing you kept was what you had for shore lunch. So there wasn't any, but boy, there were unbelievable fish there were a lot of uh, the biggest fish i caught was uh, uh 40 inches it was a northern pike i had a friend caught one 48 inches it was unbelievable and i caught one on a fly rod that was 36 inches that's and a, that was a blast that's a big fish for those of you who don't fly fish a 36 36 inch fish on a fly rod is <laughs> well the northern pike they're massive we call them freshwater barracudas you know i mean uh you had steel eaters and everything, right? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of times uh, they would roll up in a, in the leader, and their gill plate was sharp oh. enough that they would cut your line. So, but no, you had to have steel eater, or you couldn't begin to couldn't begin to land them. But I remember one time we were I was fishing with this fella and. And he set the hook, and then I had a strike, and I set the hook. And, (laughs) you know, we were both playing this fish, or our fish, you know. We each had a fish, we thought. And then he landed his fish, and my line came out of the water, and I was trying to figure out what was going on. And the guide said, look here. And he opened up the this uh, northern, it's probably about a 10-pound northern, and they have a little uh, spring plier device that they can wedge into a fish's mouth. And, and hold it open so they can take the lures out. And we looked down in there, and there were two number five MEP spinners in there, crazy. a yellow one and a white one. <laughs> and this fish had hit both of them. Yeah. 
one right after the other. And I said, there's no way I would fish in this or swim in this water. No. Man. So most of that was, I mean, you guys are using spinning rods. How did you, how did you get into fly fishing? Well, I, I fished the local streams in Missouri and uh, I had a friend of mine uh, that uh, took a trip out to Dutch John, Utah, and they fished the tailwaters below the Flaming Gorge Reservoir. And I went out on a trip, and you fish in drift boats, two fishermen to a boat, one front, one back, with the guide manning the oars in the, in the middle, in the center of the boat. And you fish standing up. They have stanchions that, you know, you can support yourself and keep your balance with, uh, I felt, oh, that's the only way to fly fishing. Oh, it's, I mean, it's just, <laughs> and we caught, we caught all kinds of German brown and rainbow and it's beautiful scenery, gin clear water. I mean, it was, you could see the fish swimming around and, and I thought, boy, this is, I've died and gone to heaven. And that was along about probably 1991, I got started there, and I don't know how many years I've been out there. And then uh, I was able to get Austin interested in fly fishing. And I was going to say, so you built me my first fly rod. Yes, I built you a, built it from a sage blank. Yeah. It's a sage rod. So that was, what year was that? That would have been, Well, I was I a would, freshman in college? Or was I? No, I think you were still in high school. in high school? Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I'm sure you were. So it would have been probably 2008 or nine. Yeah. Well, you would have been about uh, uh, probably 16, maybe 17. So have I really had that rod for 12 years? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So, yes, so those of you who have not fly fished, who've never built a fly rod, building a fly rod is kind of an in-depth process, correct? Yes, it, there's a lot of steps to it. And it's uh, it, it's like everything in fly fishing. It, it requires patience. <laughs> That's the biggest virtue of fly fishing. Patience and the solitude. That's what I enjoy the most. You have the fellowship and all the fun with the guys you're fishing with. But when you're fishing, it's just you and that little dry fly or that strike indicator out there. And uh, you you have to stay totally focused if you're going to catch any fish. And there's a lot of techniques on how to make certain casts and all things that you learn uh, over time. But it's... uh, it's very, very enjoyable, and it's a lot of fun when you're catching fish. Of course, anytime you're fishing, if you're catching fish, it's fun. I don't oh, yeah. care if it's in a creek bank or in a mud puddle. I mean, if you're catching something, it's fun. Well, and so <clears throat> I'm really blessed in that. The first the first trout I ever caught on a uh, fly rod <clears throat> was a rod that you made, and then so... Do you remember a lot about the first time we went? So we went to Bennett Springs. Yes. Which is a small trout stream. It's run by the Missouri Conservation Department. Uh, and uh, it's been there a long, long time. It's down uh, just west of Lebanon, Missouri. Uh, it's probably got about uh, maybe four miles of uh, 
trout fishing. <clears throat> and uh, part of it is for wading, and then part of it is set up for just uh, uh, bait casting from the bank. But uh, Austin, uh, we were going to go, and the night before, I showed him how to, I got out my fly tying stuff, and I showed him how to tie uh, some little 64th ounce uh, marabou jigs. Yeah. And he tied, uh, oh, several colors, but he seemed uh, kind of fond of the white ones. And so we got up early in the morning. It was about an hour drive. And the fishing started about 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it's when they started it. And uh, so we had to leave about 4.30 to drive over. Uh, we got in a bad rainstorm, as I remember. I think that was the first trip. Yeah, it was. And we had to pull off the road a little bit. And we thought we were going to miss opening siren. But we we didn't. We got there, and and you have to buy a tag, you know, and everything, and have show your fishing license, and all that, and then you can go to the stream. And then when they blow the siren, everybody start fishing. Yeah. And uh, I took Austin up to this one hole, and and I showed him, you know, where the water line was. Uh, there was a, a current coming down the opposite bank, some, and then it slacked off to almost still water in front of us. And there was a lot of moss that grew in that slack water. So you, you had to cast over into that moving water and make a drift. And I explained this all to Austin and everything. And uh, I'm fishing down below him, you know, and I'm making a few casts. I think on his second cast, he caught a trout. I could not <laughs> believe that. The first time I went trout fishing, I had fished two and a half days before I was able to hook one. Right. And he caught this, and he caught the biggest fish of the day on that second cast. And he caught it on that white marabou jig that yeah. he had tied the night before. And he <clears throat> was really hooked in. He was excited, I could tell. And I told my wife, I said, I got a fly fishing buddy from yeah. now on, I think. Well, and that, that was the thing, I think. Fly fishing is, it's kind of intimidating at first. Like, you, I, I fished before, but I had never... There's something in the mechanics of catching a fish on a fly rod that's just unknown. And so, yeah, we woke up. I mean, we woke up at like 3.45 in the morning, which I'm not I'm not really a morning person. And so that was like, and then we get into this huge rainstorm. We're both a little leery about whether or not we were even going to be able to fish. I mean, sometimes when it rains that heavy, it washes um, the stream out. It gets really murky and the fish just aren't, they're not going to be that active. And so... We were nervous. I remember I think I had a poncho on, like shivering in the stream. And yeah, we made that first call. And it was just, I just remember being so relieved that I caught a fish. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like that. And I think for me, the thing that was so so special about it was one, like, yeah, I caught a trout, but I caught this fish on a rod that my grandpa tied or that my, my grandpa made and a fly that like he taught me to tie the day before. And so I think that was that was a cool moment for me. And it really was. I mean, from that moment on, I've been pretty hooked on uh, on fishing. And so we have been fortunate to go out west together. Yes. And so we fished the North Platte. We've also done the green. Yes. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit just about drift boat fishing with what that first trip was me you norm and then chris was that our first yes chris first trip yeah we went out and we fished two days on the north platte uh it's the gray reef yeah. area 
and uh, it's mostly rainbow, but you, it's, it's not uncommon for each guy to catch uh, 20 or 25 trout mm. a day, and they're nice trout. I mean, you catch a lot of trout that are uh, 16 to 20 inches, and those are nice trout on a fly rod. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's uh, we fished two days there. Uh, Austin was fishing with uh, my nephew, Chris, who's, uh, oh, he's probably about 10 or 12 years older than Austin. Yeah. But he lives out there. He lives in Aspen, Colorado. But, boy, those two fished together, and they had a blast. And uh, we had more fun. We caught lots of fish. Well, then we packed up and drove over to uh, Dutch John, Utah, and we fished uh, the Green River uh, below Flaming Gorge Reservoir two days. And there you could you could get into some brown trout. Now, the, the fishing wasn't quite as good on the green, uh, it, it, they've had some problems out there over the last few years and they, they went through a seven year drought, which really messed up the, uh, forage and stuff in a lot of the streams, which affected things. But, uh, oh, it's just, there's no, when you get him on, you hook one and he'll come flying out of that water about three feet in the air and make a big porpoise oh, yeah. I mean, land, arc and landing. It's it's really a lot of fun. And I've really enjoyed being able to go with Austin. And then Austin and I went out, just the two of us, yeah. last year, and we fished the North Platte two days in September. And uh, we caught a lot of fish. And uh, we caught <laughs> everything we caught on that trip was on – uh, dry fly on top water. Yeah. And Austin had never fished that very much. And he really, really enjoyed it. And he really caught a lot of fish. He caught two really nice trout. I missed a good one, and too. And he missed a good one. I, I missed a monster. <laughs> I should have had that fish. I, I was thinking about that earlier today. I was like, man, I can't believe I missed that fish. Well, you talk about a big one. I, I got one. I was fishing on Tanny Como. Yeah. Out of a drift boat. And I'd never had any luck down on Tanny Cove on fly fishing much. I'd usually done my most of my trout fishing down there with ultralight and small spinners, little Cleos and things like that. But anyway, right. we, we were fishing, fly fishing, and we stopped by this island. And it, what made it an island was there was a, a the, the current from the river, or, which all Tanny Como is, is a... a the White River dammed up a little bit. It's not a really big, wide lake at all. And it's got a lot of current to it. Well, the current cut, some of the water cut behind uh, this little jetty of jetty of land, which made this an island. And we were wading off of this. You know, normally we don't wade out of a drift boat, but the guy told us to bring our waders, that there'd be a couple places we could get out and wade and fish. And uh, I don't think he wanted to row all day. But anyway, it didn't matter. So <laughs> it got really windy. The wind was blowing hard. And that's fly fishing is really hard when it's windy. I mean, it's, it is it is tough. So back on the upper part of this island on the back side, there was this kind of a deep pool. And this current was cutting around the front of it. And there's this great big German brown trout laying in there. He he went well over twenty pounds. <laughs> Jeez, and he's laying there, and he's 
he's kind of fanning, he's working his gills and his mouth, and you can tell the guy is, he's not feeling good, you know. But anyway, everybody wanted to catch him. Well, with the wind blowing the way it was, and we couldn't get anything in there to him, so this guy would come up with a big, uh, oh, it was kind of a gray, uh, uh, I'd what it was a oh, sort of a jig, but not really. I don't know. I'd never seen a fly like this, but it w- it was big and it was pretty heavy, which we were fishing six weight rods, which it was too big for a six weight rod, and. In the wind, it was impossible, and everybody was trying to, you know, and the guide says, you want to try it? And I said, well, he says, you got to cast right up there, you know, so many feet up. He was telling me above the guy and all this trout and all of that, and and I thought, with this setup and this wind, you know. Right. Right. So anyway, I make, I don't know, three or four casts, and he's, no, 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 not that. you got to get it up a little farther. Well, I made this cast, and it looked to me like I hit this trout right on the nose. (laughs) And the guy just had a fit. Yo, you're going to spook him out of the hole. Oh, and all of a sudden, my line took off. Yeah. And the the fun was on. (laughs) He inhaled that lure. Right. And we started down, and this wasn't very deep water it was just like a i would call it a creek on the back side of it had all kinds of rocks and limbs down and all this and here i am in my waders hanging on to this big old trout and it's just like walking your dog you can't do anything with him <laughs> yeah. you know and everybody's giving me directions everybody's giving me instructions right you know? and i'm stumbling on a, and I, I it's probably about a quarter of a mile, maybe not that long, but it was pretty far down to the tip end of this island. And this trout just kept moseying, and he'd stop and turn around, and then he'd go a little farther. And I just kept hanging on. I, there's no way I could land him, pull him up on the bank, you right. know. And uh, we're getting down there, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do when we get to the end of this island? I yeah. mean, you know. Running out of real estate pretty quickly. Well, we got down to the almost the tip end, and this old guide, that one guide, he probably weighed about 260 or 70 pounds. He was a big guy. And there was a tree down in the stream, and the stream kind of widened out there. And I'm trying to work around this tree. Well, uh, the trout swim in under the limbs and of yeah. course you know i thought well it's over now well this guy th- thought he could get him out of there and the guide was cr- crawling back in there with a net and i thought well maybe there's a chance and about that time the guide slipped and went head first right into this tree Gosh. broke the limb off <laughs> broke the trout off and it was all over <laughs> and i thought that guide was going to cry yeah and i said I had all the fun I could have possibly had with that fish. I said, and I said, I don't think that fish was, I don't think it was fair for me to catch that fish. He says, I don't think he was feeling good. Right. But it was, that's the biggest trout I've ever had get off that I've seen. Yeah. And uh, it was a whole different whole different feel was, on that side. I've never had a whole one that big. Yeah. Those are the ones that you think about. And that's that's the thing about drift boat fishing. I mean, you just, you catch so many fish. And when you're used, to, I mean, we're used to Bennett Springs, which 
is fun. Like wade fishing, like that's great, but they're hatchery fish. Like you're, you're not catching monsters. And so everything we catch out West is, I mean, even a small fish to them is, I mean, I, we, I get off the stream every day and my arm is killing me just from catching. I mean, you end up holding the rod and you have to hold it kind of either into like the, the pit of your forearm or your stomach, just because you're just, you can't hold the rod up anymore. You catch so many fish that way. And so, yeah, we, we just did this trip out just the two of us. First time we've done that, um, drift boat fishing and yeah, my first time really experiencing good topwater fishing. And it was, I mean, it was phenomenal. Just the, we, we were throwing, it was kind of windy one day. We were throwing hoppers and just, I mean, we were catching a ton of fish and that's fun fishing. Like you, we were sight fishing. And so we were throwing out and watching fish swim up and hit it. And that's, I've, I've never done that. And that was, that was fun. And we had a, we had a great guide too. Well, that's what he said. You know, he, he had each of us make a cast that morning. Yeah. And he says, give me your best cast and or something like that. And we both cast out there and he said, okay, you guys are good enough. He said, let's go hunting. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy could see trout working. I have no idea how he did that. I, I mean, I finally got to where I could follow how he was yeah. doing it. But, and he only let one of us fish at a time. He says, I don't, that's my rule. I don't want two of you cast into the fish right. at the same time. And so we'd take turns until long about early afternoon. Uh, I just sat down and I said, I'm wore out. Yeah. <laughs> I said, it's, it's, it's all yours, Austin. It's hard. And it's, but, uh, we, uh, I loved watching Austin work those fish and catch yeah. those fish. It's, it's a lot of fun when you can finally get a fly in where you, and you know, this is the drift. This right. is the one he's going to take it. You just know just, it. <laughs> there's a feeling you get, you know, it's a perfect drift. Like you can just, you can predict when you're going to get a hit. It's crazy. And though we, we tried a new lodge that trip and it ended up being really, really nice. Really nice. We enjoyed that too. We do, um, kind of our, our tradition now we, we go to some other places, but we were talking about this over dinner tonight. Um, the silver Fox is a little, uh, is it technically a steakhouse or is it's it just a steakhouse there in yeah. Casper, Wyoming? So we, that's kind of been our new nightly tradition is you, you get off the stream. I don't know what, about four, four thirty every day. Um, and they drop us off right back at the, the lodge, which is really nice. And so typically when it's just us, we, we didn't have a ton of food. Chris is always kind of the guy who's in charge of the hors d'oeuvres for the, when you get off the river, but to this trip, we had some meat and cheese and some snacks. Um, our new drink has become old fashions. It used to be wild Turkey one one Well, I mean, your drink is still wild Turkey. Gobble, gobble, gobble. <laughs> why, why wild Turkey? I don't know. I just, uh, I've always liked bourbon whiskey and a guy, a friend of mine introduced me to wild Turkey and I said, Hey, I like this. And then he introduced me to Wild Turkey 101, and 101 is 101 proof. And I said, I really like this. I, my favorite drink, uh, bourbon drink, is a Manhattan. Yeah. And so uh, that's where uh, a drink like that, uh, the the quality of the whiskey makes a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. You drink Wild Turkey 101 on the rocks, which is pretty... and I. 
I used to do it and I'll still do it every now and then, but it's a little harsh for me nowadays. But we've we've started doing old fashions, which I'm not saying I make a good old fashioned. Oh, you do. He does. I think I think they're good. And so that's kind of our unwind time. You know, you've you've spent all day on the stream. You come back, have a couple old fashions, and we always typically smoke a cigar. We used to smoke. What do we? We used to smoke Swisher Sweets. Yeah, now we real expensive stuff. Yeah, we're uh, <laughs> we're into the cheap cigarillos. So now we do uh, black and mild wine wood tip. That's the that's the go to cigar that we like to smoke, and that's kind of been I don't know really a theme just throughout our whole relationship. Really, it's just I think I remember a ton of summer nights just sitting on the deck and it's always just having an old fashioned, having a drink, smoking a cigar and just kind of relaxing. And I think that's important in life, right? Like it Well, and that's that that's the other that's the other fun half of fishing. It is. And that's and then, you know, you have a couple drinks, you unwind a little bit and then you go to dinner and we went to the Silver Fox, you know, steakhouse or whatever it is and they have really good food. You got into escargot this trip. I had, I had, I tried this uh, escargot. It was made with a puff pastry all completely on top of it. And I yeah. thought, well, I like escargot, so I thought I'll try this. And I have to say that's probably some of the best escargot I've ever had. And I thought, who would have thought you'd have found that in Casper, Wyoming? Yeah. But <laughs> we, I did. What are what are they known for? They're known for their uh, prime rib. Is yes. that what they're known for? Prime yes. Rib. So prime rib and steaks, but mainly prime rib. This is kind of a random place for. Ca- I mean, Casper, Wyoming is not very big at all, but their food is really good. And yeah, it, it's yeah, it was Casper is a fishing town, especially in the season. I mean, you have a ton of fishermen. We ran well, into our guide. You run into your guide all the time at it's, a certain it's, restaurant. It, like it's an old oil town. Is it? Yeah, oil and coal, natural gas. That's, that's gotcha. That's why they don't. That's why they don't have any uh, school taxes in Wyoming. Oh, really? They build it all off of the the uh, coal and oil. And I didn't. They know got that. some fantastic schools. Right. On your guys's fly-ins to out when you were doing Hatch Lake, you guys you saw a plane go down, right? Or you had a plane? A plane did go down. I didn't see it. Uh, I was supposed to have been on that plane that day, and uh, our guide was sick. So my buddy and I said, well, we'll just take a day off, and we'll just get a boat, the two of us, and we'll fish around the the lodge there. And it was a a little beaver was the name of the plane. Yeah. I think it was made and manufactured in 1938 or something like that. I mean, <laughs> but uh, Beaver has a huge uh, engine. It's a single engine right on the nose, and it's got lots of horsepower. But it's a twin pontoon, you know, a pontoon plane. And the thing that is, the uh, fuel for those planes, those pontoons, the tanks are in the pontoons. And so you have two fuel systems. and you have a fuel tank on in one pontoon, fuel tank in the other, two separate carburetor systems, all of that. So if you have any kind of a fuel problem or one side, you know, you can switch to the other. You know, you've always got a backup. Right. Well, I know I was talking to my buddy and I told him, I said, you know, uh, I think they've got a problem the way those young men are handling that, that fuel. That fuel came in in 55-gallon drums, and they were pumping it into the 
to the plains, into the pontoons. And these were upright. They left them upright. Right. Well, it rains up there all the time. Yeah. Well, you got a, you have a, uh, about a one inch rim on a 55 gallon drum and the bung opening is, is down in the top of that right. barrel. So you, you, in essence, if, if it rains and you don't get that all wiped out or tip it on its side, uh, you, if, you, if you open that up wrong, you're going to get water in that fuel. Yeah. Well, <laughs> which is what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. They they went out and uh, the the engine went down, and the guy knew it was a fuel problem, and he switched to the other fuel system, and it fired up, and it ran a little ways, and then it went down. It's crazy. Had fuel hit, and uh, so he he brought her in, and it went in nose first. Um, they had to swim probably about. I think it was about a half a mile off from the shore. And uh, from what I understand, of course, that water's very cold. I mean, you know, that I, that lake is completely frozen over uh. in the winter. And so <laughs> so it never gets warm. Right. And uh, they had to, uh, to get out of the plane, which the only problem they had is one of the pontoons uh, buckled or broke inward and it, was pinned up against the side door. Oh. And they, they had a really hard time kicking the door open. They finally got it open. And they all got out. And I remember one of the guys, I had talked him into using as a lake, as a boat bag. I always used a Baja bag. I had a big blue and I've still got it. It yeah. still works. Oh, yeah. And I told him, I said, hey, man, that'll keep everything dry. And I said, uh, you can use that as a flotation device. I said, and he told me, he says, you know, you told me that, and I bought one of those. And he said, man, I just put my arms over the top of that and just yeah. kicked my way in right to shore. He said it That's worked That's crazy. Great. But, uh, yeah, the plane went, that kind of put put the end of the trip. It was the uh, uh, day before the trip was supposed to be over, and nobody was interested in Going out again, we all fished around the lodge a little bit, but yeah. uh, but nobody was hurt. Yeah, uh, bad. I mean, there were a few, you know, bruises and right. scrapes, but uh, nobody was hurt. The pilot was okay. He, uh, they thought he was going to go into hypothermia at once. He was a little bitty guy, and he got so cold. But they got yeah. him wrapped up when they got him on the shore, and but that was kind of crazy. I remember another time we. Uh, we we did a a, a a float trip. It was for trout fishing in the middle fork of the Salmon River. And when they bust us from Ketchum, Idaho, up to Stanley, Idaho. And uh, this was in uh, the first week of September. And uh, we uh, crawled into these little kind of two-seater. They, they could take four guys with the pilot and one guy had to sit up front with all the rods. If they were, if they were any put up, we didn't have anything <laughs> yeah. put together then. So that wasn't an issue, but we fly into these, uh, that river runs through the sawtooth mountains. I think there are anyway, we, we fly into this and we're flying over all this forest. And then we see the stream and this guy flies down and looks like he's going to fly into this big bluff. 
And then he banks that that little plane. I think it was a piper. I'm not sure what kind. But he lands it in a little open field right down there yeah, beside the stream. <laughs> come out of nowhere. And we climbed, we climbed out of there, and here were all these big rafts already sitting there. That's and we, crazy. We got all rigged up, and we floated uh, 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 six days, seven nights. Uh, floated 56 miles. That's crazy. On that. And they cooked. All these young men, these guides, were the cooks. Right. But when you got in in the evening... All the tents were all set up, and they had the tables set out, and they had all your booze sitting there with your name on it. And yeah. they were over there, and they had to cook everything in Dutch ovens. Yeah. Because it's zero impact. Right. Couldn't build a fire on the ground. And uh, they had a, a, I said, that's the biggest John Deere inner tube I've ever seen. They had a big, huge raft. It was black. And that's where they carried all these supplies and stuff. And you'd get up in the morning and you'd tear your tent down and fold it up. And there were two men to a tent and then they would be cooking breakfast and you'd have breakfast and you'd get in the raft. Well, then they'd load up and you'd take off fishing. Well, they'd load up this big black raft Yeah. and noon you'd wind up and you'd pull in and here's this big raft there and here's the table set up with all these cold cuts and all this stuff for lunch you know (laughs) and then we'd crawl back in and float down in the next night and oh yeah and we had a the first night the guy said if you go up around here it's about it's about a mile and a half or so but if you follow that trail down there there we've dammed up a hot water spring Really? And he said, it's a, it's a natural hot tub. And we went down there, boy, and it was wonderful. Oh, yeah. Right temperature. I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, we were sitting in there, and, of course, we didn't have any bathing suits, so we were all uh, in the buff, and uh, we hear some people coming down the trail. Well, there were two ladies in the group, and I heard somebody laughing. I said, that sounds like one of the ladies. And, man, we're out of there scrambling, getting clothes and everything. And these two guys come around there laughing. Right. <laughs> they were acting like ladies. That's it with you. <laughs> That's funny. But it was a fun time. And we caught, oh, I don't, it was all top water. It's all catch and release. But, right. Uh, oh, I don't know. You'd catch 30 or 40 trout every day. It's a I lot mean, of fish. A lot of fish. But they were all not big because of the uh, right. The, I mean, that's whitewater rafting in the in the early spring. You can't fly fish it. The, the waters, you could see the high water marks up on the canyon walls. Gotcha. But uh, where we were fishing, I asked the guy, and he said, "Well, if the guy had a heart attack, and he says, well, you're probably going to die." That's crazy. Because he <laughs> says, "I don't think anybody get to you in less than four hours." Right. So. That's wild. You figure, I don't know a better way to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think you've you've had a lot of crazy experiences. I think as we, we kind of wrap this up, is there anything you want to say, any piece of advice you would instill in someone else or... Well... I don't know, for life, for relationships, whatever, whatever it may be. I think... You have to take things seriously, but I think you can you can just if if you take advantage of opportunities when you read them and work hard, but have fun, enjoy it. Uh, 
money is just a means to an end. Now, obviously, you want to have enough to get to the end. Right. But uh, you got to enjoy it if you got some extra. And mm. and I was blessed that I was fortunate. I was successful in a, in a few things, and, and but I worked hard. I worked a lot yeah. of hours, a lot of times to make things go. I used to work... Uh, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks in my injection molding business in the beginning. I mean, it, you know, it just, it's what it took. Right. Or any way I thought it did. Yeah. But uh, it, uh, it, it paid off. And, uh, but all these fishing, all these trips I had with these guys and uh, lifelong friends. And yeah. we, we're still, uh, well, we lost one of our one of our main foursomes. We lost him, and uh, two others can't go anymore. I'm the only one left uh, out of that group that can uh, still go, and I don't know how much longer I can do it, but yeah. I'm still going to keep hey, trying. We're still going, so. But uh, I don't know. I think uh, you can take things too seriously. I, I've been married to the same woman for 60 years and I have no idea why she put up with me that long, but I'm just so, so thankful she did. And, and I know one thing for sure, I am a heck of a lot better guy Yeah. because of her than I would have been without her. And I really mean that, hmm. but boy, we don't agree on everything. I assure you. <laughs> oh, I've but, seen but it. it, but it's always healthy. Oh yeah. <laughs> What I think, yeah, I was I was asking Megan and Derek like, what do you think love is? Last night, and so it you saying that reminds me of that conversation of you don't always agree, but that's okay. Like you choose to love each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean you just well, you know, when I was a kid growing up, all and we were in a we were blue collar family. I mean, you know, half of us had outhouses. I mean, it wasn't a wealthy neighborhood by any means, right? But all of my friends' dads worked, and all of my fr- friends' parents, I mean, they had married parents, and then they, they were both their natural parents, and the uh, uh, mother stayed home right, and took house. I don't know of any of my friends' mothers who worked. That's crazy. And... We spent all our time outdoors because there wasn't anything to do indoors. Right. Unless the weather was just, I mean, the weather really had to be bad or we would, Yeah. we were always getting together. We played a but I think you learn values, you learn work ethics, and, and that's the things that's important in life. I mean, mm. it's not, you know, how important you are or how successful you are necessarily if if you're a man with a family and you're happy and you can take care of them, you're very successful, I think. You're yeah. very blessed. That's good. Because uh, there's a lot of folks that have a lot of of uh, wealth, a lot of physical things. Right. And they're not really nice people, or a lot of them aren't, and a lot of them aren't really that happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but a lot of them are, too. Right. You know. But uh, it's, uh, I just hope we don't lose that kind of, I think we had to play with each other and communicate with each other because that's, that's all there was. Right. We couldn't look at a screen and work our thumbs and yeah. 
play games or <laughs> right. To, you know, we had to talk to each other face to face. We made our own rules and we enforced our own rules. And sometimes that got interesting, but oh, yeah. that's the way it was. <laughs> yeah. And you learned a lot from that, right? I think. Sure. And you did a lot of that without any parental interference. Hmm. Parents, most of our parents didn't have any idea of what we were. I mean, you know, if we got in trouble, they knew. Yeah. But as long as we weren't getting in trouble, we were pretty much doing our own thing during the summer and after school. Right. Loved every bit of it. Yeah. That's good. No, I I like that answer a lot. Um. Yeah. Anything else you want to say before no, we I'm before fine. we wrap it up? I, I talked you to death. You know. No. That. This is. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've heard a lot of these stories, but I I'm really excited to put this into a recording and like be able to listen to it. Yeah, this, this has been awesome. Um, thank you for taking time. I know you're a little leery at first, but I think, I think it was great. Well, thank you for inviting me. Austin. Of course. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to, for tuning in to another episode of mellow Mondays. 